Galatians chapter 6. Let's begin reading in verse number 11. The Word of God says, Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for that great sacrifice made upon our behalf. Lord, we thank you that Christ was willing to go to Calvary. Lord, we thank you that you were willing to give him that we might be redeemed. Help us tonight to see this great truth. And Lord, help it to arrest our souls for your glory. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you find your seat, I want to read again for you verse 14. Paul says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Tonight, if I can, for a few moments, I just want to glory in the cross of Calvary. Now, what does it mean to glory in the cross? Well, as I read through my Bible, I understand uh, and I see an application of the word glory in about three different ways that I think we need to tuck into our minds tonight in the hearing of this message. I believe that to glory in something meant to boast in it. Paul would talk about this throughout the uh, letters to the church at Corinth, that there were things he could boast in, things he could glory in, things he could brag about, things he could look to to say they were something or meant something. The Apostle Paul, he was a man that had done much for the cause of Christ. I think really if we saw the Apostle Paul today, I think we'd be astounded at what an unassuming figure he would seem to be. It appears as though Paul was probably not a very big man. Uh, they let him down the wall in a basket at one point. And uh, I don't know about you, I don't know how big of a basket it was, but uh, I couldn't fit in very many baskets. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, Paul was probably not a very big man. Paul was uh, not necessarily a very eloquent man. Uh, Paul was uh, the type of man that uh, he said when he came to the church at Corinth that he came not in the power of man's wisdom, not with great words of wisdom and, uh, and of man's ability and, and cunning, but he came in the power and demonstration of the Spirit of God. Uh, when the Apostle Paul preached, I don't think you would have been listening to a very polished or a very, uh, a very eloquent individual. Paul wasn't necessarily very eloquent. Paul would not have seemed, I don't think, very vigorous in his health or in his appearance, especially at this time in life. In fact, we read there just a few moments ago how that Paul spoke about how large a letter he had written to him. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I suspect if you have the right Bible, then the, the book of Galatians is probably the same size in your Bible as it is in my Bible. And really, in the grand scope of things, the book of Galatians is not a large letter, even compared to Paul's other letters that he wrote to New Testament churches. It's not on the larger side. Paul was not saying that he wrote a voluminous letter to them, but he was speaking about his penmanship. And when he said how large a letter, he's saying, look at these large letters I'm having to write unto you. It is supposed, and I, you know, we've talked through Galatians a couple times, once in Apollo's course, once in Sunday school, 
And it is supposed that the Apostle Paul was so troubled at the situation at the church at Galatia, uh, normally he had a, a fellow that would write down his uh, letters for him. In fact, a lot of times it was Timothy. You'll find Timothy's name at the end of his letters. And the reason for that is because Paul suffered, it, it appears, from some sort of vision problem. And a lot of times Paul, would he would dictate his letters to someone, have someone else write them. Well, it's supposed that the Apostle Paul was so troubled at the state that the church of Galatia was in that he didn't wait for anyone to come and to help him with his letter. He sat down and in big scrawling letters he wrote this book of Galatians because he was troubled by it. This was a man that was battle-worn for the cause of Christ. This was a man with a thorn in his flesh that God got glory from and that he got grace from. This was not a man that you would have seen that would have seemed to have been in peak health condition. But you know, in other ways, the Apostle Paul, though he was not a very assuming individual, in other ways, I think the Apostle Paul would have seemed like somebody that held some prominence and prestige. You understand that the Apostle Paul, uh, while he was not the first to preach the gospel, he definitely was the furthest to preach the gospel. Uh, you and I wouldn't be sitting here tonight if it hadn't been for the Holy Ghost forbidding Paul to go into Asia and instead him going over into Macedonia and him beginning to win Europeans to the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I sit here today a product of the Apostle Paul's willingness to serve God and to go to places where the gospel hadn't been before. We wouldn't have 14 books of our New Testament for us to be able to read had the Apostle Paul not been obedient to the Lord. This is a man that in a lot of ways had stood tall against the religious hypocrisy of the day. This is a man uh, that stood in the presence of the high priest and called him a whited sepulcher, uh, said that he was uh, unclean on the inside, that he was full of dead men's bones like the Lord had said about the Pharisees. Uh, this is a man that had stood before kings and magistrates and had preached in boldness the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a man that had suffered shipwreck. This is a man that had been almost beaten to death on multiple occasions. And if I read my Bible right, it looks like the Apostle Paul was a man that had probably braved the uh, wild beasts in the arena there that Rome had. In other words, this was a man that had a lot he could brag about if he wanted to. This was a man that had been caught up into the third heaven, heard unspeakable things, and seen things that he was not permitted to speak about. This is a man that could have bragged in a lot of things. But you know what the Apostle Paul says? He says, at the, end of the thing, at the end of the day, there's nothing for me to boast about except for the cross of Calvary. There's nothing for me to brag about except for the cross of Calvary. All that I've done is nothing compared to what Jesus did for me. To glory means to boast in something. To glory also means to rejoice in something. You find this usage all throughout the Old Testament when they talk about the Shekinah glory of God sitting down on the temple and talk about the joy and the rejoicing uh, that the children of Israel would have. And certainly there's multiple occasions where the Apostle Paul talks about them glorying in what God had done. I think it means to find something to rejoice in. Let me say to you tonight that if everything in your life is going wrong, but if you're saved by the grace of God, you have something to rejoice about. In the cross of Calvary, we have a point and a fixture and a fountain of joy that overflows and outflows anything that the world could ever offer. To glory, I think, means to boast in something. To glory, I think, means to rejoice over something. But I also think to glory means to find value in something. In other words, the Apostle Paul, when he was talking about boasting, he was saying this, if I wanted to, my self-worth could be vested in what I've done for Jesus. But you know what he's saying? My self-worth is not vested in what I've done for him. It's vested in what he's done for me. 
to glory in something is to uh, both boast and rejoice and consequentially to feel as though there is some value attributed to your life because of the reality of it. The Apostle Paul says this, if I'm worth anything, it's because of the cross of Calvary. If I'm worth anything, it's because Jesus died for me. You know, whatever talents or abilities we may have, whatever charisma we may have, whatever influence we may have, it means absolutely nothing if we're not born of the Spirit of God. And if there's anything about me, I want you to listen carefully, if there's anything about me that's redeemable, it's only because I have been redeemed. If there's anything about me that is worth keeping, if we could say it that way, it is only that which God has produced in me. You see, the Apostle Paul, when he speaks about glorying in the cross, he's saying, I boast in it, I rejoice in it, I found value in it. He's saying my entire life revolves around this thing of the cross of Calvary. And in it I find everything that I need. I want tonight to give you three reasons why I glory in the cross. Three reasons why my self-worth is vested not in who I am or what I can do, but is vested solely and only in the cross of Calvary. Three reasons that I rejoice in the cross of Calvary. Three things about the cross of Calvary that I can brag and boast about, not because I've done them, but because God has done them. I about swallowed a frog. Somebody say amen to that. Let me say three things tonight that I see in the cross of Calvary that are worth glorying over. Let me say, number one, I glory in the proclamation of the cross. Have you ever wondered why the cross is so offensive to this world? Why is it that the world doesn't have a problem with Jesus in a manger? The world doesn't even have a problem with Jesus uh, in the Easter story, Jesus being risen from the tomb, Jesus being the the meek, mild Galilean, Jesus being the gentle Lamb of God uh, that uh, there in the garden spoke Mary's name. But there's something about the cross of Calvary that is an offense to the world. Have you ever wondered why the cross is an offense? I believe the cross is an offense to the world for the same reason that I can glory in it. Let me give you three reasons that I glory in the proclamation of the cross. It tells me three distinct things that I rejoice in. Let me say, number one, that the cross told me that I was lost and needed to be saved. Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. The cross declares to the world that every single man, woman, and child born in this world, everyone with a heart beating within them, everyone with a soul in them, every one of them is lost without Christ and on their way to hell. Now, you're going to say to me, I know, well, preacher, that doesn't sound like very good news, but here's where the glory of the cross comes in. I was lost whether Jesus had ever died for me or not. You see, the cross did not make me lost. I was already lost in my own accord. I was alienated from God. I was a stranger from God. I was outside of the family, outside of the fellowship, outside of the fold. There was nothing within me that was uh, redeemable to God. In and of myself, I was nothing. The cross did not make me lost, but it manifested to me my lost condition. Had Jesus not come and died, you know, he talked about this in the book of John. He said, if I had not come and done the works which I have done among them, then they had had no sin. What's he saying? He's saying that now that I've come and worked the works that I've done and revealed God to them there without excuse, the cross of Calvary shows me that if Jesus died for all men and I'm part of that all, then evidently I needed to be died for. Well, why did I need to be died for? Because I was on my way to hell and could not save myself. 
If what people needed, listen carefully, if what, if what this world needed was better government, God would have sent a politician. If what the world needed was more money, He would have sent a philanthropist. If what the world needed was, uh, was uh, more humanitarian efforts, He would have sent someone as a charity worker. If what the world needed was more social reform, He would have sent a social worker. But He didn't send any of those things. He sent a Savior. Because man's chief problem is that he's a sinner lost without Christ. If you've been born, I trust everybody in here has been born. Is there anybody in here ain't never been born? Trust everybody's been born. If you've been born, then you've been born into sin. And people say, well, preacher, I'm a pretty good person. No, not if you're lost, you're not. You may be morally good, but you're not spiritually right until you've been born again. Say, preacher, I didn't do anything to be lost. Well, you didn't have to do anything to be lost. You was lost anyway. But if you're like me, you've done things that evidence the fact that you're lost and showed forth the reality of your lost condition. You say, well, preacher, what can I do to change that? You can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There's a lot of people think they're going to heaven because they're trying real hard. But the reality is we don't get to heaven because we're trying real hard. We're getting to heaven because we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ or we're not getting there at all. Uh, it's by grace that you're saved through faith uh, and not of yourself, not of good works, uh, not lest any man should boast. Uh, it's not that we've done anything. It's not through the works of the law that any flesh shall be justified. It's not through our own works that we be justified. The only way to be saved is through the cross of Calvary. And the cross reveals to you and I that we are lost without Christ. I didn't know I was lost until somebody told me the story of Jesus. I was raised in a Christian home, and I was told at a very young age about the story of Jesus. Uh, my little boy, we're raising him, and we try to constantly remind him, talk about the Lord, talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. We try to talk about what the Lord uh, did for mankind, because he won't know he's lost, except he's come face to face with the cross of Calvary. That's part of the reason men hate it, is because where there's no cross, they can operate under the delusion that their good works are enough, or their church membership is enough, or their baptism is enough, or their, uh, their attempts to try to be moral are enough. Have you ever met one of these people that you ask them, have you ever been saved? And they say, well, sure. And you say, well, when did you accept the Lord? And they say, well, I don't know. Now, let me say this. You don't have to know the date. You don't have to know the weather. You don't have to know the day of the week. You don't have to know a bunch of details. When I got saved, I got saved on December 1st, 1997. It was a Monday evening. I got saved around 7.30 p.m. I was in my bedroom at 8336 Coppic Road. I have in my office right now the square carpet I knelt down on and accepted Christ as my Savior. But the reality is you don't have to have any of those things. But what you do have to have is a time in your mind you can point to that you say, I know then I accepted Christ. I know at that point I gave my heart and life to Christ. I know there's been a point, a time when I humbled myself and called on Jesus, confessed myself a sinner, and received Him as my Savior. You see, the truth is, without the cross, we wouldn't know that we're lost. We'd go about in the world trying to do and establish our own righteousness like the Jews have done, and thereby forgetting and neglecting the righteousness of God. But the cross reveals to you and I that we couldn't save ourselves. It told me that I was lost. Let me say number two, it told me that I was loved. The cross is the great love message to mankind. Romans 5, 8 states this, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If all the cross did was tell a man that he was lost and give him no way out of that lost condition, then I would suggest we never preach the cross again. 
but the reality is the cross does not just reveal to a man that he's lost. He shows him that he is loved by an almighty and thrice holy God. That a God that whose holiness is so vast that literally the fabric of the universe could crumble before His holiness goes unvindicated and unjustified. That that type of God, whose holiness He loves so dearly and so jealously that He consumes sin when it's in His presence, that God loved you and I enough that He would send His Son as a sacrifice to die for us, to pay for our sins, to bear them, to become them, so that we might be brought close to God. Boy, that's a love that I can't even fathom. I don't know what the disciples were thinking about at this time 2,000 years ago. But I tell you this, as we sit here tonight, I'm reminded as I consider the darkness of Calvary's tree, as I consider the depths to which Jesus went that I might be saved, it speaks and spells out to me love. He cared for me. He didn't have to do that. I think sometimes we misrepresent the cross as though it were this mandatory event for Jesus. But you know what he said? He said, no man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. And he said, I take it up again. This power have I been given from my Father. No man took his life. He willingly gave it. God gave the Father, uh, the Father gave the Son, the Son gave his life, and beggars go free. You remember that old song? God gave His Son, and the Son gave His life freely of His own accord. He wasn't forced to do it. He didn't have to do it. He did it because He loved you and because He loves me. Now, that's a price I think very few of us could even begin to fathom. The Bible teaches us that we can, with all saints, comprehend the depth, the height, the uh, breadth, the length of the love of Christ. We can, in some way, observe God's love if we'll look to Calvary and see that Christ was dying for those that didn't deserve to be died for. He was loving those that were unlovable. He was redeeming those that were not in any way redeemable by man's estimation. He did so not because He was forced, not because He had to, to do so to be God or to retain His Godship, but He did so because He cared for you and I. If Jesus had wanted to, He could have been incarnate in this world. He could have walked amongst men until the first time that men reviled Him. And He could have said, I want no part of this. And walked straight up to glory. Sat down, enthroned in glory and reverence and authority. And there wouldn't have been a thing mankind could have said. We didn't deserve it. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. And so when we think about on this day, of all days of the year, what this day means and represents, let it remind us that we are loved by God. And we are loved by Christ. I glory in the cross because it told me I was lost and it told me I am loved. But I glory in the cross because it told me that I could live if I would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, the Lord Jesus said this, The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Then He said this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life. For the sheep. You know what the Lord was saying? He was saying this, where the wolf stalks outside of the fold. The good shepherd is willing to go out, and so that the sheep might come to no harm, he's willing to exchange their life for his life. He could allow the wolf to take the sheep if he wanted to and walk away unscathed. But he went and laid down his life for those sheep that they might be safe in the fold, that they might be preserved from danger and harm. As it were, his life was exchanged for the sheep's life. 
And in the same way, the cross of Calvary tells me this, that though I deserve to die and go to hell, though I deserve to die in my sins, though I deserve everything that God would in His righteousness pour out upon me in His wrath, though I deserve all of it, I don't have to experience it if I'll just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, that doesn't seem fair. It's not fair. It's grace. It's not fair. It's grace. People say sometimes God's not fair. God isn't fair. If God was fair, He'd send us all to hell. And He would have never sent His Son to die for us. God is not fair. God is gracious. And God took the life of Christ in place of your life and mine. Now, you might say, preacher, I didn't live 2,000 years ago. How could I have died on that cross? Well, the reality is that the cross embodied the wrath and punishment of God. And the truth is, you and I would have suffered a far worse fate than just merely the physical experience of being nailed to a cross and expiring after six hours. Because what we deserve is not just to have our hands pierced and our feet pierced and to be placed upon a cross. What we deserve is not just to hang in the midday sun for six hours. What we deserve is not just to thirst to death, to have our joints pulled out of socket, to have our legs broken, uh, to be suffocated to death or to be pierced through with a spear. We deserve those things, but we deserve much more than those things. For we deserve to die and go to hell for eternity. That's what we deserve. That is what was our lot and our portion. But through the cross of Calvary, I'm reminded that if I would, just like in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel had murmured against God and He sent poisonous serpents among them, and they were dying by the thousands, the Lord instructed Moses. He said, I want you to make a brazen serpent. Brass, by the way, represents the judgment of God. And fix it upon a pole and set it up in the camp and tell the children of Israel that all they have to do is just look at it and they can live. They'll just look at it. They can live. My preacher growing up used to ponder this question and answer it in the same breath. He'd say, what was the difference between the serpent on the floor, on the ground, and the serpent upon the pole? The difference was the serpent upon the pole had no venom. Had no venom. It it wasn't there to destroy. It was there to deliver. But it represented that which was killing them. And in the same way, the Bible says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must also the Son of Man be lifted up. And the Lord Jesus was suspended upon the cross of Calvary between heaven and earth so that He might grab hold of the hand of God and the hand of man. And all we need to do is look unto Him, just trust in Him. It's said that Charles Spurgeon, when he was a young man, when he was 15 years old, he uh, had been grappling with this idea of God and this idea of redemption, and he knew he was lost. He knew he was unsaved, and he had uh, traveled to various different churches trying to find out what it meant to be saved. And He had gone to some churches, and they talked about repenting, and he had gone to some churches, and they had talked about baptism, and he had gone to some churches, and they talked about paying a certain amount, and he had gone to some churches, and they talked about joining the church membership, but on one snowy day. He was headed to a church, but he got derailed. A blizzard set in. He wasn't able to go to the church he had planned to. But instead, he went aside to a little alleyway and found refuge in a little Methodist church that was there. And he went in and there was only a handful of people there. And he sat down and the preacher wasn't even there. He wasn't able to be there because of the snowstorm. So a lay preacher was up there preaching. He took his text out of Isaiah where God said, look unto me and live all ye nations of the world. And over and over again, when that uneducated uh, lay country preacher would be preaching, he would say, look and live, just look and live. He'd talk about how a look is not a matter of effort or of work. 
A look is not something that has to do with our self-worth. A look is merely an act of faith. All we have to do is look unto Him, and we can be saved, all ye ends of the earth. And it was there in that little chapel that Charles Haddon Spurgeon placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God saved him eternally. You see, the cross of Calvary reminds me that I can live. I don't just have to, I, I don't just get life, I get life more abundant. I don't just get life, I don't just get my life, I don't just get what my life would have been had I never sinned. I get His life if I believe on Him. He took my death so that He could give me His life and I could believe on Him. I glory in the proclamation of the cross. Let me say number two, I glory in the propitiation of the cross. Now, the word propitiation is the New Testament variant of an Old Testament concept. In the Old Testament, the word was atonement. Kafar was the Hebrew word, and it meant a covering. This same word was used for the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, uh, in the Old Testament when the high priest would go in and offer sacrifice for the people. But this same Hebrew word was used over and over again in other places. Whenever Moses' mother, Jochebed, built the Ark of Bulrushes, uh, she covered it about with pitch. And the Bible says she pitched it. And that's the same word for atonement. The Bible teaches us when Noah built the ark and he spread about pitch and mud on the outside to make it sealed against the judgment of God's waters, that that same word was pitch and it means to cover. And in the Old Testament, that's all the sacrifice could do was cover. The book of Hebrews tells us clearly that it's not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats could take away sin. All it could do was cover it for another year. The New Testament word is not the word atonement. It is the word propitiation. And it means to wash thoroughly and to take away. In the New Testament, the Lord doesn't, through the blood of bulls and of goats, cover our sin, but through the blood of the Lamb of God, spotless and sinless, shed upon our behalf, He takes away our sin. The book of Hebrews says it this way, Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. I glory in what the cross meant, but I glory also in what the cross ministered. What took place, what transpired. I glory in the transaction of the cross. For it tells me three things about what God did for me. And I'm going to sum them all up in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Can I do that? The Bible says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This verse reminds me that there was a great appropriation that took place on that day. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. The Lord Jesus never knew any sin. He did no sin and in him was no sin. But on the cross of Calvary, he became our sin. It says, we have made Him to be sin. God vested all of our wicked, vile sin in the Son of God. And then He smote Him like He should have smote me and you. He became our sin. You can imagine there are certain things that just the thought of us doing would make our skin crawl. There are things that we, through our moral uprightness, would look at and say, if I ever did that, I couldn't live with myself. And we're but sinful man. We're not even a man. We're a worm and no man. <laughs> we're nothing. We're wicked. We have darkness within us. And yet there are things we recall at the thought of. Now imagine this. The Son of God, spotless, perfect, righteous, sinless, became our sin. Every wicked, vile thing you've ever done, said, or thought. Every wicked, vile thing that anybody's ever done, said, or thought. The most wicked 30 seconds that Adolf Hitler ever lived, Christ became that. The most wicked, darkest thoughts that Jeffrey Dahmer ever had within him, Jesus became that. He became our sin. There was a great appropriation, but then I noticed there was a great application too. 
God reached out. Jesus reached out. He took our sin. But I notice also the Bible says that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He took and He placed His righteousness over us. I couldn't have saved me. I still couldn't save me. I can't help God save me. I can't make God save me. But God, through His grace, has chosen to save all those that believe on His Son. And when that happens, God takes the righteousness of Christ, all that is sinless, all that is beautiful, all that is holy, all that is upright, all that is sanctified, all that is consecrated, all that which outshines the Son. And He robes it on us. And He places it on us. So that when God beholds us, He beholds us in the position of Christ Jesus. There was a great application. But then I noticed this. There was a great appraisal that took place on the cross. The Bible says this, For He hath made Him to be sin. Then these two words, For us. For us. For you. And for me. Boy, that's a great appraisal. You know what an appraisal is, right? If you've ever sold a home or if you've ever had a piece of jewelry and you wanted to find out what it's worth, you'd take it to someone and they'd give you a price on it. And they'd say, this is how much I would pay for it were I interested in buying it. Uh, a lot of times, I used to have an old uh, truck. I used to have a 68 Chevy. And uh, it was a long bed. wish it was a short bed. Uh, wish it was still mine. Somebody say amen to that. But I learned something real quick. I, I paid too much for that truck. You know what I learned when it comes to classic cars? You know what they're worth? They're worth what somebody will pay for it. It's what they're worth. Whatever somebody will pay for it is what they're worth. I found that when you take those old trucks and cars and you, you try to sell them, that oftentimes uh, the, the appraisals people will give you are wild. Sometimes people, you'll, you'll hear, you'll see on the Internet, or you'll hear, you'll do research, and you'll find out, well, somebody out in California, they paid $50,000 for a 68 Chevy Longbed, white with red seats, just like mine. But guess what? That fellow in California, he ain't sitting in Knoxville, Tennessee. The fellow sitting in Knoxville, Tennessee paid $4,000 for it and got took. Amen? They're worth what you'll give. wonder what God would give for us. For God hath made him to be sin for us. We spend a lot of money in this country in public school system with counselors and, and therapists trying to invest in young people a sense of self-worth. And all the while, the world in secular humanism neglects the greatest sense of self-worth a person can ever find. You remember what I told you about glory? It's to find self-value in something. Paul said, when I look at the cross, it tells me how much I mean to God. Tells me the lengths to which God would go to to redeem me. It tells me that when I don't see much in me, and when the world doesn't see much in me, and when even the people that I love don't see much in me, that God in heaven, the God of all glory that sitteth on the circle of the earth, He looked down and saw something worth dying for in me. It was a great appraisal took place on Calvary. Let me give you one final thought, and I'll be done. I glory. In the proclamation of the cross, it told me that I was lost. It told me I am loved and it told me I could live. I glory in the propitiation of the cross. There was a great appropriation. He took my sin. A great application. He placed on me the righteousness of Christ. And a great appraisal. He did this all for me. But I glory also in the power of the cross. 
For in it I find it gives me three things. And I'm going to give these to you very quickly and be done. Let me say number one, I glory because the cross gives me forgiveness. Forgiveness. Colossians chapter 1 verses 12 through 14 says this, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of God's dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. You know, I glory in the cross because if it wasn't for the cross, I could have never been forgiven of my sins. There my debt was paid. There my account was settled. There my outstanding station was addressed. There at the cross of Calvary, there was a way for God to be both just and the justifier of them that come unto Him. You see, had it not been for Calvary, God could have been just. He could have sent me to hell and that would have been just. Or God could have been the justifier. He could have ignored my sins at the expense of His own holiness and He would have no longer been just. But because Jesus bore my sin and became my sin, because He had a spotless record. You see, I had a stained record. He had a spotless record. God had to deal with my sin debt, my sin stain. And so He took the righteousness of God and He gave it to me and He took my sinfulness and placed it on Christ and judged Him and smote Him and afflicted Him and punished Him in my place. And so all I need do when I look at my sins, is go to the Lord and say, Lord, I can't pay for him, but Jesus paid for him. And I can find forgiveness. And now, you know what the Bible says? In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, when God forgives us, he's not doing anything out of order. He's not doing anything out of keeping with his righteousness and his just nature. Because His justice and His righteousness was addressed on Calvary. And because of the cross, I can be given forgiveness. Let me say the cross gives me forgiveness. Number two, the cross gives me fellowship. When I was working this sermon out, you know, I I like to alliterate sermons. I don't know if anybody ever notices or cares, but I like to do it. It makes me feel better. And uh, I I was going to say it this way. That he that that uh, because of the cross, uh, the cross gave me the ability. It it, uh, It forgave me. But then I was going to say this. It also familiarized me. It brought me into fellowship with God. Listen to what the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell, speaking of Jesus. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. We've already alluded to it tonight. But through the cross of Calvary, Jesus, the only man to ever walk this earth that had the right to grab the hand of God as a co-equal on the same level was the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, who being in the form of God thought it not equal or thought it not robbery to be equal with God. For, For Jesus to stand up and say, I am God, was not for him to tell a lie or to say anything out of order. He was very really God in all reality. When he grabbed the hand of the Father, he was grabbing the hand of an equal. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But listen to this now, Paul said in Philippians 2, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of man, the nature of man, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He in one hand grabbed a hold of God, and in the other he reached down and grabbed a hold of me. I couldn't get to God. <laughs> 
Couldn't make myself better. I couldn't make myself righteous. We've mentioned it several times in Sunday school here lately. But listen, just as Jesus became the best 30 seconds of Adolf Hitler, by the same token, the best 30 seconds of Toby Weber was still enough to send him to hell. The best I could do, the best of me, my righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. I couldn't get to God. I needed somebody to get me to God. I could do good works from here to the rest of my life. I could make promises. I could give money away. I could give uh, clothes away. I could give food away. I could promise I was going to do everything right. I could be baptized six or seven different ways. I could join every church I could find. I could do everything to try to make myself right with God. But my problem with God is not that I'm not baptized. My problem with God was not that I didn't belong to a church. My problem with God was not that I didn't give money away. My problem with God was not that I was a bad person. My problem with God was that I was a sinner for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. That was my problem. And though I might be able to do something about my selfishness, though I might be able to do something about my lack of religion, though I might be able to do something about my lack of compassion for others, I couldn't do anything about my sin. Couldn't change my sin. Couldn't pay for my sin. Couldn't promise to never sin again. I mean, I could, but it'd just be a lie. It'd just be another sin. Because I couldn't stop myself. It's who I was. I couldn't get myself to God. But God, instead, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, He grabbed hold of the hand of God, and He grabbed hold of the hand of me, a fallen, lost sinner, and became a bridge, became a connecting point, became a point of reconciliation, so that I might be brought into fellowship with God. Now the Bible says that by the Spirit of God we cry out, Abba, Father. I have a relationship with God, and that's because of the cross. I couldn't know God without the cross. That's where the knowledge of God is is to come to the cross of Calvary and let God tell you who you are and let God tell you who He is and let God tell you how things are and to let God tell you what things need to be made right and let God tell you how to make them right. Only through the cross of Calvary could I be given fellowship. And finally, and I'm done tonight, I glory in the power of the cross because it gives me forgiveness and it gives me fellowship. But I glory in the power of the cross because it gives me freedom. Freedom. Now, freedom is not a word that the world associates with Christianity. The world associates the idea of bondage and rules and standards and strictures with Christianity. But here's the problem. The reason for that is because they don't understand the desire that's been given to us. The world only wants to do that which is wrong. So when the Bible says you shouldn't live wrong, they say, well, that's not right. That's bondage. That's, that's chains that's being placed around you. But that's all they know to do is what's wrong. They're in bondage. They can't help but live in sin. They might live in good sin. They might live in bad sin. They might live in moral sin or they might live in reprehensible sin. They might live in socially acceptable sin or they might live in sin that causes them to be socially ostracized. But one absolute common denominator to every lost individual is that no matter what type of sin they're living in, their sin is still sin. And they can't change that. But you see, when I got saved, I was freed from having to live in sin. I understand I'm not perfect. I understand I'm always going to do wrong. But I don't have to let sin have dominion. In fact, listen to what the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. The Bible says, Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, 
That's the cross. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. When someone dies, there's one thing they cease to do. If they don't cease anything else, they cease to sin. You say, preacher, I'm going to make my mind up that I'm not going to sin anymore. Well, then go ahead and just lay down and die. Because that's the only way you're ever going to do it. As long as a man lives, as long as a man breathes, he's going to make mistakes and he's going to sin and he's going to do wrong. The only way to cease from sin is to die. Now, we're not to die physically. I don't believe, I mean, some of us might. But I don't believe that's what's being spoken of here. What's being spoken of is a spiritual death. And it's saying here that our death spiritually was accomplished on the cross of Calvary. And now we don't have to be the servant of sin. Now we have a choice. See, when I was lost, I didn't know how to do anything but sin. You might say, preacher, you must have been a pretty awful kid. No, not really. But I only knew how to live to please myself or to please somebody around me. I didn't know how to live to please God. You say, preacher, is it a sin to live not to please God? Well, the Bible says we're to do all things under the glory of God. If you can't listen, if you're not living to please God, then you're not living for the right reasons. And so I didn't have the ability to please God. I was moral, but I wasn't spiritual. To be moral is to live within the confines of what society demands and accepts as being right. But to be spiritual is to be alive and have a relationship with God and to be living in direct obedience to Him. And I could be moral, but I couldn't be spiritual. I was spiritually dead. But through the cross of Calvary, my deadness was given to Jesus and His life was given to me. And now I have a choice. That's the reason the Lord said, if the Son hath made you free, you're free indeed. You're free indeed. You say, preacher, what does that mean? Well, you're free to go out and live in the world if you want. You'll be judged as a son. You'll be chastened. Every son whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. But God's not going to stop you from doing that. If you want to go out and do that, you can. But listen, when a person's lost, they can't do anything but live in the world. Right? But when they get saved, they have a choice in the matter. And through the cross of Calvary, I've been given freedom. I always had the freedom to do wrong, but the problem was, it wasn't freedom. I thought it was then, but it was bondage. I didn't have a choice. But now, since I've been redeemed and born again, I have a choice. I can choose to do wrong if I want, sure. But more importantly than that, why would I? Because now I get to choose to do right and to live for the glory of God. I glory in the cross because it gave me freedom, real freedom. If the Son had set you free, you're free indeed. And now I can live in freedom. Boy, we have much to glory in in the cross, do we not? With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed.